Turn with me to Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. We're going to be jumping all over the Bible today, but that's the primary passage we're going to be looking at. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Today we'll be looking at what I think is probably the most bizarre, or at least one of the most bizarre commands of Christ. Bizarre because through the, though this command perfectly reflects the character of God, this command is far different from the character of man. So let's turn together, Luke chapter 6, 27-36. And Jesus says here, I say to, to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now each of these, we need to understand that each of these things that Jesus is saying for them to do, have political precedence in their time. This is how they're being treated and used by the Romans. He's not just pulling these examples out of air. This is what's happening. All right, And so they can relate. All right, so he says, Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Amen. So I want to spend our time today looking primarily at just that statement of the Lord. Love your enemies. In this time in our world, the, the word love has been misused and abused and twisted and confused. It is misunderstood, to say the least. But so also the word enemy. Like so many things, the meaning of those two words has become relative to us. Kind of open to personal interpretation. So I think it behooves us to examine both of these words today and see how scripture defines them. So what does Jesus mean when he says enemy? What does he mean when he says love your enemy? Firstly, we need to remember the audience that Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the Jews. People who have been set apart by God. God's chosen people and they know it. A proud people. A uniquely special people. That God has handpicked from all the nations. And they know it. And now, in the time of Christ, they have been conquered and invaded by the hated Romans. Unclean idolatrous pagans. And these pagans rule them. They abuse them. They kill them. 
They execute them. They display the bodies of these chosen people on wooden crosses to mock them, even in their death. Every Jew listening to Christ has felt the effects of the pagan rule. Every one of them has suffered in some way under the thumb of Rome. And Jesus has the audacity to say, love them. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, Jesus was a Jew. He, grew, he had grown up under the hand of the Romans. He knew what his people had endured. He lived with them, spoke with them, ate with them, shared their struggles, but still he commanded, love your enemies. Not simply tolerate. Not simply endure your enemies. Not simply be nonviolent. Love. You see, this is so confusing to us because it is in stark contrast with our human nature. And no matter how many times we hear it, we, we all have heard this verse before, but no matter how many times we hear it, it, oh, it sticks in my craw. It bugs me. I don't like it. doesn't seem just. doesn't seem right. We've heard it so often, but we don't live it. Many of us have never had enemies like the Jews of Jesus' time had. I think we so often misunderstand what an enemy according to Scripture really is. The word enemy here is ekthos in the Greek. And it means someone who is openly hostile, who is animated by deep-seated hatred. Hatred. Ekthos implies an irreconcilable hostility proceeding out of a personal hatred that is bent on and resolved on inflicting harm. That's the scriptural definition of enemy. In our culture, and with the onset of social media, we have learned to see anyone who disagrees with us as the enemy. Even within the church. Even those who, who we know love Jesus, and often even those we know love us even from those who agree with us on all crucial doctrines of the faith. If they disagree with us on political or social matters, we label them. We disparage them. We call them enemy. Or what's worse, we take on some of the roles of an enemy toward them. But, beloved, disagreement is not the same as enmity. The ones Jesus is calling his people to love go far, far beyond disagreement. And yet Jesus says, Love your enemy. Love the one who steals from you, who beats you, who kills your friends, kills your family. Love that one. John 4, 1 John 4, 8 through 11 says this. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world, that we might live through him. 
In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also, we also ought to love one another. Notice what the scripture says there. God is love. Love is the character of God. I'm reminded of Philip's request to Christ in John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it, is an, it will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus' response here should clear up some theological errors. If we want to know what God is like, if you want to know God's character, if you want to understand more fully God's ways and his thoughts and his heart, we need only to look at the life of Christ. If we want to know truth, look at Christ. If we want to know what love for enemies means, look at Christ. Jesus says, love your enemies for the same reason he commands anything throughout Scripture. God's commands come out of God's character. He calls us to be like him. He does not call his people to be or to do something that he does not do. He commands love for enemies because... He loves his enemies. And praise God for that. If he did not love that way, we would have no hope. For all of us are apart from Christ. All of us, all of us apart from Christ are enemies of God. That's who we are. By our sin, by our selfishness, we have gone against the very nature and the character of God. By our attempts at self-justification and self-rule, we have set ourselves in opposition to his rightful lordship and his plan. Make no mistake, without Christ, we are the enemies of God. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, still his enemies, he gave up his son. I can't fathom that. Gave up his son for those who were his enemies. There is no greater love. I'm reminded of the true story of a woman whose son was walking home through a park and was mugged and killed. His killer was found. His killer was arrested and jailed. But instead of appearing at the court to plead for a higher sentence, she forgave her son's killer. She visited him. She learned his life. She loved him and led him to Christ. And at sentencing, she pleaded for leniency. And she continued to visit him in jail. And eventually, she officially adopted him. You know, I used to think that that story was unique. I read it years ago in, in the 90s. In, the, in Our Daily Bread, I, I read about that story. And I used to think it was unique. That it was an amazing but a singular account of the power of the love of God. But as I searched for other stories, I found more and more accounts of the same type of love over and over again. One man lost his daughter to murder and led the man to Christ and eventually adopted his daughter's murderer 
as his son. Another woman, a widower, widower whose son was murdered, is now living next door to the man who killed her son. A man she visited in jail, discipled, and loved. What do all these strange people have in common? Jesus. This is the love we have been called to show. Because this is the love that we have been shown. This is the love we are called to freely give because we have freely received. How this love has been lacking and is needed today. This, beloved, is what sets Christians apart. No strongly held convictions, though convictions are really important. Those convictions are not what is called to set us apart. That's what love is supposed to do. We are called to be so strangely different, so divinely empowered to love that the world takes notice. Stubborn love in the face of hate, compassion in the face of enmity, kindness in the face of cruelty, giving in the face of malicious taking. Love. And it's not whether or not we feel loving. It's not about allowing the Spirit of God alive in us. I mean, it is about, it is about allowing the Spirit of God that lives in us to be loving. Despite our fleshly lack of love. Let me say that again because that's important. It's about allowing the Spirit of God that is alive in us to be loving. Despite... Our fleshly lack of love. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Understand this, beloved. The Spirit of God in you is already loving. The Spirit of God in you already loves your enemy. So what is love? What did Jesus command us to do? How did he command us to be When he said, love your enemy. We must also understand love according to scripture. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Love is laying down self for the good of the other. For the good of beloved. Love is action. Love is deed. It's not based on emotions. Love is loving like God loves. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So I think, as, as you turn to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I think the use of this chapter in weddings <laughs> has allowed us to dismiss these verses as just romance. But that's not why Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it because the church in Corinth was having a trouble with division. They were coming against one another. And Paul said, this is the most excellent way. It's not about romance. It's about the love of God. And this is what God says love is. Starting at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship, That I may boast. 
but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now we're going to be working through the next verses one by one from verse 4. Love is patient. That's a rough one for me. I'm not by any means a very patient person. But God is in me. Love is kind. We do not get to be unkind and call it love and say we're being loving. We've all had that directed to us, haven't we? People come up to us and say, I'm just going to say this because I love you. And then what proceedeth forth sounds anything but loving most of the time. Loving correction, speaking of correction, loving correction is done in a way where the person doesn't have to give a caveat before. Is done in such a way and by such a person that we know that they love us. Love is kind. It does not envy. It doesn't covet, covet what others people have, and we don't. Love does not boast. Love is about laying self down. It's about laying self down for the sake of someone else. Beloved, Love is not about building self up. And that's what boasting does. The spirit of boasting is the opposite of the spirit of love. Boasting is all about wanting to be front and center. To be proven right and better than. Love is content with helping others. Love is not arrogant. The Greek word here means puffed up. And it's the same word that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, that says, knowledge puffs up. This is the same word. Love does not puff up. Arrogance makes you think you are bigger and better. But scripture says, God opposes the proud. Opposes. Actively works against the person who puffs themselves up. Actively works against the prideful, arrogant person. Love is not rude. This is one of those traits that we think are based on personality, don't we? But it's not. Rudeness is a sin. We we like to say, ah, it's just who I am. I'm naturally uncouth. I say what I think. I'm I'm that point-blank kind of person. If people can't handle, handle that, then that's their problem, not mine. Beloved, love is not rude. If you're called, you are called to love. The Greek word translate, translated as rude carries the meaning also of acting unbecomingly or even dishonoring others. In the NIV we read, love does not dishonor others. That's also in that word rude. Love does not insult or slander or mock or try to bring someone down. Love does not insist on its own way. The loving person does not always seek to be followed or obeyed or agreed with. They do not have to be right in other people's eyes. They do not need to win every argument. Today, in this time, when we're going through all these different things on social media and in, in, our, in our country and around the world, Christianity, a lot of times, I, I see one of the main fallings is one of the main strengths. We love truth. Christians love truth. And they want to be on the side of truth. And that is important. But that's not love. Love is not lying, certainly. But remember 
in our search for truth, you are still accountable to be loving. Love is not irritable. Love isn't based on mood. It's not dependent on coffee or sleep. (laughs) It's not short-tempered or easily offended. I find it very interesting to be a fly on the wall in social media, to watch the same people who complain about how people are so easily offended are like the easiest offended people I've ever seen. Love is not irritable. Love is not resentful. The NIV says, keeps no records of wrongs. Which is, clo- which is actually closer to the Greek than the ESV, which says love is not resentful. And keeps no record of wrong carries with it the idea of keeping account. Paul is saying here that love does not keep or bring to mind a list of offenses. Love keeps short accounts with people. It does the hard thing. And when there's an offense, whether when the, when the person who is uh, the lover offends, they go and they apologize, they make it right, they keep short accounts. When they're hurt, they try to be reconciled to the one that hurt them. Love keeps short accounts. It doesn't keep a list of offenses. We all know that. We all do that. Dawn can pull back something I did back in 1990-something. And I don't remember. Sorry, babe. I know you're watching. (laughs) Love keeps no record of wrongs. Remember that? (laughs) But I think that's a wife trait, right? That love keeps no records of wrongs. It doesn't keep an account. It doesn't keep a list of errors as ammunition to bring back at a, at a more opportune moment where they can stick it to you. Or bring before a group of other people that, I got this list of what they did wrong. That is not of God. Beloved, that is Satan's accounting. Let me say that again. Keeping a list of wrongs, that is Satan's accounting. He is the accuser of the brethren. Jesus is our defender. This type of accounting of keeping records of wrongs is usually excused and allowed under the guise of protecting ourselves. And I would remind you that love is not self-seeking. Beloved, we are to keep short accounts with one another, to lovingly hold one another accountable. To do the hard thing at the hard moment and love. Not to scheme and to use one another's errors against us, against them. Love does not rejoice at at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The word wrongdoing in the Greek means unrighteousness. Remember the context of 1 Corinthians. Paul is rebuking the church for allowing divisions... And allowing and even bragging about the sinful behavior that they've allowed in their congregation without accountability. Paul is is rebuking them for that. And love, Paul is saying here, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Taken into the context of the passage of the book, Paul is saying, you're boasting about and rejoicing about how open-minded you are is not good. When you say, hey, man, we got 
such and such and such and such and such and such kind of sinners with us, and why aren't we awesome? Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. You are to love them enough to hold them accountable. To help them not be that anymore. Love does not delight in unrighteousness. Rather, love rejoices with the truth. Jesus is the truth. The truth brings freedom from unrighteousness. Not acceptance of it. Love bears all things. The Greek here carries with it the meaning of grace, of extending to the other a love that perseveres despite the wrongdoing. Love bears all things. Love endures. Love keeps going on even when not returned and even when mistreated. Even when those we hold accountable do not come under that accountability. Love bears all things. And also in the Greek is the idea of covering. This love covers the beloved. Love's shelters. Love's covers, love covers a multitude of sin. Love hides the beloved beneath its covering. Love takes care of one another. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. This one makes me wonder... And I wonder what, what, where Paul was going with this. But, so I looked at Barnes' commentary, and he says that this reflects the heart of the Berean Jews who received, the, it says this, in Acts, it says that the Bereans received the word of God with eagerness and checked the word to see whether it was true. Love receives what people say with eagerness. Love takes people at their word it's not constantly skeptical. It, does, it isn't bitter and untrusting. Love hopes all things. Love does not give in to despair when times get tough. Love never gives up on people. And love endures all things. All earthly attack. All hurt. All insult. All dis- disagreement. And rejection. Love endures it all and keeps on loving. Love keeps on serving, keeps on giving, keeps on putting others first. Love endures all things. Christian love is not Christian love if it does not endure. If it only lasts until it gets hard, that's not Christian love. Love never fails. Love in and of itself is victory. It does not require response. Godly love is always correct. Godly love is always obedience. And is therefore, because it's obedience, it is always victory. Even when it does not produce the desired effect, the Christian is always walking in victory when they are walking in love. It is always a win. And is never a failing. Love in the end will have victory. Paul says that this is the most excellent way. This is what loving our enemies looks like. We do not get to define for ourselves love. This is God's definition of love. 
This is what he has shown us while we were still his enemies. This is what he continues to show us even when we walk in disobedience to him. When we are attacked, this is how we are to respond. This is what God commands us to be known for. This is how Christ responded to the mocking, to the whips, to the cross. This is his example then. And listen, beloved, if he is truly in us, listen to this. This is a mystery of the Holy Spirit in us. If Christ is alive in you, he will not behave differently now than he behaved then. The Christ in you is revealed when Christ acts like Christ through your life. I want to close with a story from Corrie Ten Boom. Ten Boom. She says, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands, people filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947. I had come from Holland to, to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth that needed, to be, needed most to be, to be heard in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far away from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And the solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, and the next, a blue, a blue uniform and a visor cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back to me in a rush. The huge room with its harsh Overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this very man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland, and this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, a concentration camp where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among Thousands of women. But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. And it was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, that hand came out. Will you forgive me? 
And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of World War One, I had a home in Holland for, since the end of the World War, I had had a, a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives. No matter what physical scars, those who nursed bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching in my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperatures of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joint hands, and then, his, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and, guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intense, intensely as I did at that moment. Beloved, this is Corey's story of love and forgiveness. For this former Nazi who had repented of his sins and was made new in Christ. It's beautiful, amazing grace. But beloved, I'm convinced by our scripture this morning. That should our enemy stand before us, our enemy still. Still a Roman. Still a Nazi. Still, our political, social, personal opponent. Still, our personal enemy. Unrepentant, unapologetic, out to defeat us. Should they never ask for forgiveness, our call remains the same. We are called to reach out with the love of God. Despite our differences, we are called to love the bride of Christ so well and so deeply that the world takes note and recognizes us as disciples of Christ. See how they love one another. It's no witness to the world when we love one another because we all look like carbon copies of each other. Of course they love one another. They're all the same person. That's not a witness to the world. 
A witness, it's a witness to the world when we disagree, but we are still serving one another, loving one another, caring for one another. In our words, in our deeds, in everything about us. And I want to say, I don't want to be mean, but how dare we, how dare we allow the world to divide us? How dare we? Over worldly, insignificant things. There's no way I want to go to heaven and say to God, you know, I, I would have loved, but you know, they were that kind of person. So. I don't want to go to heaven and say to God, yeah, God, I slandered your bride because they disagreed with me on this point or that point or the other point. This morning as I was getting ready to come to church, I couldn't shake the thought that the time we are in is a test. The genuineness of our relationship with God, of His Spirit manifest in us, is being tested. Make no mistake. Whenever we go through anything difficult in life, we are being tested. So the question to us, the question to the church, is how are we faring at this test? I've said to the kids, I can't call them kids anymore, I've said to the, to the youth and young adults many times, when you're going through those hard things in life, when people are disagreeing with you, when things are difficult, when you feel hated, when you feel rejected, when you feel unloved, that is when it matters most for you to show the love of Christ. doesn't matter near as much when everything's easy. It matters when that slap hits our face. That's when it matters. That's the test. How have we been faring at this test, beloved? Are we any different if we only love those who love us? Does the world see the love of God being manifest through us? Through everything we say, everything we do, everything we type, everything about us, does it radiate the love of God for those who see us as their enemies? Does it radiate the love of God for those who come against us as enemies? If we are known for something else, we're known for the wrong thing. It is who he is. Love. And if, Christian, you are in Christ, it is who he already is in you. Let him be himself through you. Love your enemies. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will haunt us with these words throughout this week, throughout this month, throughout our lives. Never let the call to love our enemies leave our thoughts until you conform us and transform us to reflect that love by your spirit and all we say and do. Call us to repentance, Lord. Call us to ask you to be filling and living and loving through us. 
We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.